Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I want you to imagine that somebody walks up to you this week and says, I have a question. I hear you're a Christian. I have a question for you. Why would God love sinful people? Why? Why would God send Jesus, as you believe, to, to die and pay the penalty for sinful people? Why? So what would you say? Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure most of you would say it's because he loves us. He has compassion on us. He cares about us. And that answer would be absolutely right. It's because he loves us, cares about us, has compassion on us. But now what if that person wanted to dig a little deeper? He said, okay, I hear you say that God loves us. Let me ask another question. Why does God love us? Why? What motivates his love? What, what stirs his love? Why does he love us? What would you say to that? Now that question's not as easy, which is why there's lots of different answers given by people. I've heard people say that the reason, they would just say, well, we just can't know. Uh, it's a mystery. We'll never know why God loves us. I've heard people say, well, it's because, just because God is love. That's why he loves. I've heard people even say, well, I think maybe it's because God is lonely. Wanted to save some people so he could have them around. Maybe God's, God's needy in some way. I've heard people say, well, it must be because God sees something lovable in us, because otherwise, why would he love us? But in Ephesians chapter 2, God tells us why. So he doesn't leave it a mystery. He tells us why, and it's not any of those reasons I just mentioned. There's another reason why God loves us. And this truth has deeply impacted me. It has strengthened my faith. It has filled me with joy time and time and time again. And, and it has enlarged my view of God. And I'm praying that God will do the same thing in each of our hearts today, that as a result of looking at this, your faith will be strengthened. Your joy will grow, and your view of God will enlarge and expand. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Now, last time we went, did Ephesians, which was maybe two weeks ago, I forget. Now, we did verses like 1 through 4, and we're going to do a quick review of, of verses 1 through 4. And let's review by asking this question, what condition were we in before God saved us? Crucial to understand this, to understand God's love for us. What condition were we in before God saved us? Look at verse 1. Paul writes, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were dead. Not physically dead, obviously, but we were emotionally and spiritually dead to God. Thought about God, thought about Jesus, just nothing happening in our hearts. Now, if your favorite rugby team was playing, heart would start beating, okay? Find some new restaurant you're excited about, heart would start beating. But think about God, think about Jesus, flatlined, nothing. We were emotionally, spiritually dead to God. And this is tragic because knowing God, beholding God, worshiping God, that's the greatest joy any human being can know by far greater than, than any other joy that there is. And yet we were dead to God. This is tragic. So you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air is, is Satan. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. This is all, we're just living in sin. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice those words, by nature. That means all we wanted to do was rebel against God. We did not want God. We did not want Jesus. We were running away from God as fast as we could. This is what was in our nature. This is what our wills wanted. This is what our free wills chose. And unless God did something, that would be continuing how we would live. That was the nature that we had. By nature and by choice, we were sinners. So all we did was sin, rebel against God. Now, you might think, well, that, isn't that a little harsh, Pastor Steve? I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I, I told, told the truth a lot, and I, I, do, I do random acts of kindness for people. I was nice to the dog yesterday. I mean, you know, don't we do some good things? And we do some good things. But understand, I mean, think about it. Remember back before you were saved, maybe this is what's in your heart right now, even the good things that we did had nothing to do with God. We didn't do them because we loved God. We didn't do them because we wanted to glorify God. It was because we wanted to not feel guilty or because we didn't want to look bad or because we wanted to feel better about ourselves, right? So even the good things we did were done with our backs turned to God, which means that even the good things we did were sin against God. So we were completely dead in sin. By nature, sinning, which meant we were children of wrath. God was wrathful against us. Now, his wrath is not temperamental. It's not that he loses his temper. His wrath is a righteous and holy and settled anger against anything that would dishonor his name. And his honor is the highest value of the universe. And so it's absolutely right that he was wrathful towards us. So that's where we were. Are you feeling this? That's the condition that we were in before God saved us. Dead in our sins, dead to God. Natures that were turning their backs on God, running away from God, shaking our fists at God. And because of that, we were under God's wrath. That's what we deserved. That was our condition. We were lost. And what did God do in saving us? Paul wanted to lay out verses 1 through 3, how lost we were, so that we would be stunned at what God did in saving us. What did he do? Start with verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we hadn't changed. We were still dead in our trespasses. What did he do? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So if you are trusting Jesus Christ right now, 
Here's what God has done for you and in you. Verse 5, God made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive because what? We were what? Dead. Dead to God emotionally, dead to God spiritually. God made us alive, which means that God supernaturally created a new nature in you, a new heart in you, which for the first time you loved God. You trusted Jesus. I see who you are since power had been broken. Now, just a little parenthesis here. God did not take the old nature away entirely. He mortally wounded the old nature. So the old nature is dying. And all through our lives, it's dying. It's getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And it'll finally be totally removed when we enter heaven. So we don't become perfect because we're made alive. But we are changed He's given us a new heart and a new nature. Remember the first time you saw Jesus? The, your eyes were opened. I love you. You're glorious. I would do anything to have you. He made us alive. That's what he did for us. He made us alive. That's not all. Look at verse 6. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, raised up, I think that's probably just another way of saying uh, made us alive. I couldn't see a difference. Many commentators said just another way of saying the same thing. I'll let you study that on your own. But I know that seated us with him, that's a different thing, definitely. God seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. This isn't a future thing. This is a now thing. He has seated us with Christ even the heavenly places. What does that mean? Remember, we saw a few weeks ago, as we were studying chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, what this meant, because we compared chapter 1, verses 19 through 21 with chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. I want to do the same thing again today so that you can see what happens when we are seated with Christ as well. Let's start with Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, and I want to point out some of the similarities of language here. There we go. Nice job, Mary. Thank you. Okay, let's read this. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And that's the exact same Greek phrase as the, at the end of verse 19, although they're translated differently in the ESV, but the exact same Greek words. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. Same word is used in verse 21 of chapter 1. Against the authorities. Chapter 1, verse 21. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So when Paul talks about rulers and authorities in heavenly places, he's talking about evil supernatural powers which are seeking to draw us away, us believers, away from Christ. So let's say Sunday morning you go into work and you hear that your associate's getting the promotion. And as you start to feel this jealousy rising up in you, understand what's happening. Supernatural spiritual powers are seeking to draw you away from Christ with that jealousy. That's what's going on there. That's what Paul's talking about when he deals with these Evil, supernatural powers are seeking to draw us away from Christ. Now, 
With that context of Ephesians 6, read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Paul says, I pray that you will know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, same phrase as in chapter 6, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. So when Jesus died on the cross, he broke Satan's power, and when God seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places, God was giving him the position of power and authority over Satan and all of the demonic forces that are seeking to draw us away from Christ. Jesus has absolute, complete power over all of them. Which means that when God seated you with Christ in the heavenly places, you are sharing his power and authority over all those evil supernatural powers that are seeking to draw you away from Christ. Do you see that? Jesus was given the position of authority and power over all those evil powers seeking to draw us from Christ, and God seated you with Christ, and so you now have that power as you are in relationship with Christ. Now, let me go a little deeper into this, just I don't want anybody to misunderstand. This does not mean that every time a temptation comes, it's just going to like bounce right off of you. Bing, easy, bing, easy. Just, just, you know, taking care of temptations right and left. Remember that word wrestle in chapter 6? We have to wrestle against these powers. This is how God has chosen to have us do this. Their power has been broken. And as we wrestle, as the scripture tells us to wrestle, their power will be overcome when we wrestle because of what Jesus has done on the cross. So it's not that it's just easy. We are wrestling, and this word is a word like gladiators in hand-to-hand combat, you know. Okay, it's wrestling. You have the picture. That's what he's talking about here. Also, this does not mean that like if the spirit of jealousy rises up, in you, you're feeling jealous. You say, be gone in Jesus' name, and it'll just boop, go back down. Nowhere in the Bible is sin dealt with that way. Nowhere. We don't, we don't command temptations to leave, and then they go. That would be nice. And some people might teach that. I just haven't seen it in the Bible anywhere. If you do, let me know. What I do see in the Bible is that the way we battle these is by abiding in Christ, by wrestling through prayer and the word to behold Christ more clearly because the reason you're jealous is because at that moment you're thinking, I have got to have that promotion or I'm never going to be as happy as I could possibly be, which is a total lie, shows that your heart is empty, you're not full of Christ, right? If you're full of Christ, you wouldn't be worried about that. You'd just say, well, I, I would have loved the promotion, but I'll trust you, Lord. You've got some better plans for me. So you're not seeing Jesus clearly, so you wrestle in the word, you wrestle in prayer until once again you see and feel the glories of Christ, you're filled with him, and jealousy loses its power, okay? That's what it means for us to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It means that as we are wrestling, as we're trusting, as we're fighting to behold him, he will give us power over every evil power seeking to draw us away from Christ. So let's put all this together. What did God do in saving us? We were dead to God, 
facing his wrath, enslaved to sin. That's what we were. He made us alive, gave us a new nature, gave us faith, so we trusted Christ. As a result, we were completely forgiven. No more wrath. Never would we face God's wrath again. And we have power over all sin. We were enslaved to sin. Now by Christ's power, we have power over sin as we wrestle and as we fight. And Paul just wants us to say, this is amazing. We were dead under God's wrath, enslaved to sin. He made us alive, forgave us for our sin, gave us power over sin. So Paul wants us to ask, why would God do this? Why does God do this? All we deserved was God's wrath. We were enslaved to sin. But God changed our hearts and saved us. And the question is, why? Paul says it's because he loves us. You knew that was in this passage, right? It's right there. Look at verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So why does God do this? It's because he loves us. Love that answer. Hold on to that answer. Embrace that answer. This is our God. He loves us. But notice something about his love. His love is a love of grace and a love of rich mercy. Those words mercy and grace show that God's love is not deserved by us. That is, the, the reason that God loves us isn't in us. Something else is moving God to love us besides what's in us because what was in us? Dead, slave to sin, facing God's wrath, nothing that would be moving God to love us. Instead, what we were moved God to wrath. So we have to ask the question, what moved God to love us? What stirred this amazing, affectionate love, his compassionate love, his fierce love, his powerful love, his faithful love? What stirred God's love for us? God loves us like no one has ever or ever will love us. God's love, if we can know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, God's love is Beautiful. But, but what stirred it? Paul tells us in verse 7. Well, let's read starting in verse 4 so you get the, the flow of thought. Start with verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, raised us up with him, look at all that he's doing, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Underline those words, so that, at the beginning of verse 7. The word so that shows the reason God mercifully loves us and saves us. Example, if you, if you go to, the, to, say, Lulu's to, so that you can buy ice cream, ice cream is the reason you're going to Lulu's, right? That's easy. If you um, drive out to the desert so that you can go dune bashing, dune bashing is the, the reason you're driving out to the desert. And in the same way, God mercifully loves us 
graciously saves us so that he can display the riches of his glory forever, the riches of his kindness forever. So the reason he graciously loves us and has mercy on us is because he wants to display the riches of his grace. God wants her to be a, a display for, in the ages to come forever. He wants her to be displays. He wants you to be a display of his rich grace. Now, why does he want this display? What's the point of this display? As I was puzzling over that, I remembered what Paul said back in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Take a look. He puts the same idea in different words. He says, he, God, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And here's the phrase. Here's the purpose. Here's the so that to the praise of his glorious grace. So the reason God predestined us for adoption was so that his glorious grace would be praised. He wants it displayed so that it would be praised. That's why. So the reason he loves us is because he wants his glorious grace praised. Now that may puzzle you. Maybe you've never heard that before or noticed that before. I hope that after this morning you'll start to see this is all through the scriptures. But go back with me to before creation, before the foundations of the world. I want to explain to you how this works. Here's God, Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And from eternity past, God the Father was full of joy in the perfections of God the Son and God the Spirit, which were his perfections as well. And God the Son was overflowing with joy in the perfections of God the Father and God the Spirit because they were his perfections as well. And God the Spirit was overflowing with joy in the perfections of God the Father and God the Son because they were his perfections as well. And so the triune God, God the Father, Son, and Spirit, were overflowing with joy in their beauty, majesty, glory, power, authority, righteousness, goodness, strength, overflowing with joy. And I want to stress that so you'll see that's right. God is not lonely before the foundations of the world. God is not needy before the foundations of the world. We need to make some people because we're just kind of lonely here. No, 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 no. Overflowing with joy. But now their joy, the joy that God had in his glory, he wanted to display that glory. He wanted to share that glory. My, my dad likes to say that a shared joy is a doubled joy. Like if you see a really funny, like one of those weird cat videos on, on YouTube, okay, and you say to your husband, your wife, or your friend, check this out. This is really funny. And, then they, and when they laugh, you like it even more, don't you? Right? A shared joy is a double joy. And so God wanted to show his glory. Now here's the problem. The highest display of God's glory is grace and mercy. For God to die. For us who were rebels against him so that we could be saved, that, that is glorious. The highest display of God's glory is grace and mercy, but the Trinity couldn't display grace and mercy just as the Trinity because how could the Father show 
undeserved grace and mercy to the Son. The Son deserved all the glory. How could the Son show undeserved grace and mercy to the Spirit? The Spirit deserved glory. Grace and mercy could not be displayed before the foundations of the world. They had to create a universe, create a world, create people, purposefully allow the fall to take place. Watch sin fill the world. People shaking their fists in God's face saying, no, we're all, just, we're all freely choosing just to rebel against God, to sin against God. Sin spreads through the world. And then God says to Jesus, and Jesus says to the Father, let's display our glory. Let's show the glory of our grace and mercy. Father, I will go. I will suffer and die to save. And the Father says, oh, son, You'll be glorified. I'll be glorified. Our glory is worth it all. And so the Father sent the Son. The Son came, became a man. God died on the cross. He was punished in our place for our sin so that we could be forgiven. And so the reason that God all did all that was because he wanted to display the glory of his grace so that it would be praised. You'd be glorified. He'd be honored. Now, sometimes when I explain this to people, I've, I've heard people say, well, that sounds kind of selfish for God. I mean, so he loves us so that he will be praised? Uh, doesn't that sound kind of selfish? And the answer is absolutely not. And here's why. Ask yourself this question. What's the most loving thing God could do for you? What's like the best possible gift he could give to you? It's not health. It's not wealth. Both of those will leave you empty. The best possible gift he can give to you is himself. Seeing his glory. Seeing the beauty of his mercy, the glorious beauty of his mercy displayed. Because when you see God in his glory, in his mercy displayed, you are filled with massively more joy than anything else in the world could possibly give you. The best gift God can give you is to display his glory so you can see it. So when he shows love and mercy to display his glory, he's doing the very best thing he could do for you. That is love because that's going to give you joy forever as you behold his glory displayed. So what all this means is that what moves God to love us is not found in us. It's not found in our worth. It's found in him, in his worth. Let me picture it like this. Picture a pulley. So you have like something down here, and then this rope goes up over, and there's another like little pan up here. I guess I'll call them pans, okay? And, and this is the love one, and we're trying to, th trying to think, what could we put up here to, to lower this so that God's love just explodes towards us? What, what can we put in this pan up here? And you can think, well, I go to church. Let's put some of that up there. I've, I've said prayers. You know, I, I told the truth that time. I, I loved my wife, you know. But see, those things, that's like lighter than dust. Like, poof, nothing happens. None of that is enough, okay? But if you take God's glory, the weight of his glory, and put it up there, whoa, God... God's glory moves him to love us because he displays his glory and is praised, which gives us joy. So it's not us, anything about us, 
that moves God. It's his glory, his passion for his glory, his love for his glory that propels his love for us. Now, with that in mind, I want to show you some other scriptures to drive this truth home. Because this might be a new thought for some of you. So look, for example, very common verse, Psalm 23, verse 3. I'm just going to show you like maybe four or five scriptures that say the same thing in different words, and I'm hoping that after this morning you'll start to see this, because it's all over the scriptures once you start to study it. Look at Psalm 23, 3. Famous psalm. David says, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. I hope that we, Grace Church, I hope we're becoming a church where we we stop and ponder phrases like that. What does that mean? This is the reason why God lovingly leads us in paths of righteousness. What does it mean that he does it for his name's sake? It's because since God in mercy and grace is doing something for us we don't deserve, he's leading us in paths of righteousness, that's going to display the glory of his name. When people forever see how God leads you, as undeserving as you were, leads me, as undeserving as I was, they're going to be saying, God, your glory is beautiful. You are merciful. Praise be your name. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's the worth of his name that's put on top of that pulley, and then he leads us in paths of righteousness. The love comes. Another scripture. Psalm 25, verse 11. For your name's sake, there it is again, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. David has sinned greatly against God. Pardon my guilt, it is great. He not only asks God to forgive him, he gives God the reason that he knows will move God to do it. Pardon my guilt, for it is great. Why? For your name's sake. It's because as God, through Christ, because of what Jesus would do on the cross, forgives David's great guilt, that astonishing grace and mercy forever will be a display to people of God's glorious grace. So they will say, your name is great. Great are you, Lord. So the, the worth of God's name put on the top of this pulley propels God to forgive us for great sin. Look also at Ezekiel 36, 22 and 26. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among all the nations to which you came. So I'm not doing this for your sake. It's not your goodness, your worth, your righteousness that moves me to do this. No, this is for the sake of my holy name. And then what does he do? Among other things, verse 25, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to make you alive, in other words. So why does God save Israel? Give them new hearts. It's not for their sake, not because of anything good in them. It's for God's sake. It's because of God's glory. It's because this will display the glory of God's mercy and grace. So one huge takeaway I hope you get from this is that the reason God loves us is not because of of anything good 
in us. It's not because of our worthiness, which is the best news in the world, because if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit there's none of that in there. If that's what it takes to have God love me, I'm, I'm gone. I'm undone. If, if we have to be good enough to have God love us, it's hopeless. Let's just get real here, okay? I'm not the only one, right? But this is the best news in the world for people like us. Now, with all this in mind, look back at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 again. I want to read it again to see if this becomes more clear to you now. I'm hoping that from now on, this verse will just be one of your, like, go-to verses to strengthen your faith, to show you God's glory. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. God loved us and saved us so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to think about what this is going to mean for you. God loves you and has saved you. If you're trusting Christ, this is what's going on in your life. He's loved you and saved you so that forever he can hold you up before all of humanity as a display of his glorious grace and love and kindness. This is going to happen. That's why God saved you, because he wants you to display the glory of his grace. So think about this. This is real. You're going to be held up before humanity. I mean, this is going to happen to all of us. I don't know how the mechanics are going to work, it's video or what, but, but God's going to, going to somehow show your life. Okay, this is your life. He's going to hold you up before all the redeemed. And all the redeemed are going to see that even though you were dead in sin, by nature a child of wrath, that God at great cost to himself set his affection upon you because Jesus was going to die on the cross for you. And we're all going to see that before our eyes as a display, and we're going to say, glory to God. Your mercy is amazing. Your grace is beautiful. All praise to you. We're going to see how then at some point in your life, God brought his power upon you and made you alive, took out that heart of stone, gave you a, a heart of flesh. You saw Jesus. You trusted Jesus. You were forgiven for all of your sins. We're just going to fall down and say, praise God, what glorious grace and mercy. We're going to see how his power changed you. I mean, you're loving people. You're loving prayer. You're worshiping Jesus. You're caring for the poor. You're sharing the gospel with lost people. You're transformed. Where did that happen? God's mercy. God's grace. Glory to God. We're going to see it displayed before our eyes. You're going to be a display to us of the glory of God's mercy. We're going to see times where you turn away from God. It's true for all of us. Sin again and again and again. And God's patience. We're going to see God's love. We're going to see God's pursuit of you. How by his power he, he touches your heart. He convicts you of sin. He brings you back to repentance. You fall before him and say, forgive me. He pours fresh assurance of forgiveness out upon you through the cross. We're all going to see that and just say, glory. Your mercy, your grace is beautiful. Your name, I love your name, your glorious name. We're going to see God bring you to heaven. Give you grace to die, however he chooses to do that. Bring you to heaven. We're going to see him stand before you and before all the redeemed say, after all he has done for you, he's going to say, well done to you. Did you catch that? After all that he has done, he's going to say to you, well done, 
good and faithful servant enter into the joy of the Lord. And when we hear God say that to you, oh, we're all going to fall on our face. You are glorious. You are majestic. You are beautiful. You are loving. You are merciful. All the redeemed from every nation, tongue, and tribe will rise in, in fresh praise and glory to God for what he's done. And when you see played out before you God's grace and mercy in your life, and when you see all the redeemed falling on their faces, worship me, God, for his love and mercy toward you in your life, you will join them in fresh praise and joy and thank God for his grace and mercy and glory in your life. You are going to be a display forever of God's glory and God's mercy. That's what Paul is saying in verse 7. You are going to show, you're going to be a display of the riches of his grace in kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. So why does God save us? That's the question we started with. It is because he loves us. He loves us. He's affectionate towards us. He cares for us. He delights in us. He favors us. He passionately cares and loves and loves us. But why? Why does he love us? It's not because he's lonely. It's not because he's needy. It's not because there's enough good in us to outweigh our bad. It's because he wants the riches of his glorious grace displayed forever for his glory and for your everlasting joy. That's why. Now, when I first saw this. My, my father showed me these scriptures years and years ago. One impact that this had on me was it, it enlarged my view of God. It's, oh God, you are glorious. And the universe is about you. The whole universe, everything in the world, every planet, every star, every animal, everything is for the glory of God. God created everything to display the glory of his grace. And that's the most loving thing he could do because your greatest joy is seeing the glory of his grace. So what all this did is it enlarged my view of God. It strengthened my faith. It filled me with joy. Let me give you two specific ways. And here are two takeaways I'd like you to, to take away. Uh, first... Understand why God will forgive all who trust Jesus Christ. Look at what John writes, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. Here it is again. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Why? For his name's sake, to display the glory of his name. Now, here, here's why this is so important. You're probably like me. I'm, I'm sure you, you are, and that is you have times where you struggle to believe that God could forgive you for something in your past. And um, you're seeing it more clearly. Maybe Satan's doing some accusing, maybe not, whatever. But you just struggle to, to believe that you could be forgiven. And maybe in your case, it's because there's one particular sin that just is so shameful to you. Or maybe it's because there was a long pattern of sin. But for whatever reason, you're just, how, how could God forgive? Look what I did. Look at how wicked that was. Look at how ugly that was. But do you see what John says in this passage? Your sins are forgiven for his 
name's sake. It's not because of anything in you. It's not because your sins were little that he forgave you. It's not because your sins only lasted a little short time that he forgave you. It's not because of anything good in you. You were dead in sin. I was too. The reason he forgives you through Jesus and what he did on the cross is because forgiving you is going to display the glory of his name. The more sin in you he forgives, the more glory comes to his name. So you seem like a really long time, God says, awesome. This is going to display my glory for their joy forever. Right? Do you see how that works? So when Satan says, look at what you did. I mean, look what you did. How could you possibly think God's going to forgive you? You know what I say? I say, I did that, and I did a lot more that you don't even know about because you don't know everything. I did a lot more than that, and I'm forgiven for his name's sake because the more sin I'm forgiven for, the more the glory of his name is revealed. The more God forgives us, the more he is glorified. Now, I just need to add a little parenthesis here. Don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, good. Uh, wow, I, I've got some sinful plans for this afternoon. So I'll, I'm going to glorify God more today by sinning. We can laugh about that, but let me be very serious with you. If, if you think that in your mind and want that in your mind, that would raise serious questions as to whether you've been made alive or not. I'm not sure anyone who loves Jesus and who has wept at the foot of the cross for what Jesus did for us, I'm not sure any of us can glibly say, I'm going to go sin some more because it will glorify God more in forgiving me. And here's why. It's because of what the author of Hebrews says. He says that's like crucifying the Lord afresh. It's like saying, Jesus, I'm really glad for what you did, but could I, like, I've got a cross here. I've got some nails. Can I nail you to the cross for one more hour for these sins I'm going to commit this afternoon? Nobody can talk the way to Jesus who has seen the cross for what it is. So don't think this means you can sin because that'll make his glorious grace abound all the more. Read Romans 6. But the main point I want to make here is it doesn't make any difference how much you've sinned. How grievous the sin was. How many years the sin was. He forgives you for his name's sake. The more you've sinned, the more his forgiveness will display his glory. You can be absolutely rock-solid confident that because you're trusting Christ, you will be forgiven because he forgives to display the glory of his name. Do we have that? This is so important. Okay, second way this impacted me. It strengthened me to see that God will be faithful to all who trust Christ. This first impacted me most strongly many, many years ago. Jan and I were in Northern California, U.S. I was a pastor there. God uh, clearly called us to leave that church and to join the staff of a church in Southern California. They had a position for me on staff, but they had no money to pay me. God made it really clear we should go, so just call me crazy. That's all right. Um, and I remember one morning, and we were just in the process of adopting our first child. So, you know, financial things going on, but no income. And uh, I was out walking, praying one morning, and I had my packet of promises with me. And the promise that was on top of my packet was 1 Samuel 12, 22. Look at what Samuel says. For the Lord will not abandon his people. Why? On account of his 
great name. See, there, there, there's, there's, the, there's the weight, his great name. Put that up there in the pulley. Whoosh, he will not abandon you, okay? The Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. God has made us a people for himself. That is, we are a people who will display his glorious mercy forever. So if God isn't faithful to his promises to us, God will dishonor his glory. Do you see that? If, if what I'm held up forever is, well, God broke promise to Steve there, and he broke his promise to Steve there, that's going to dishonor God. God's never going to do that. God is as passionate about fulfilling his promises to me and to you as he's passionate about glorifying his name, which means he is really passionate about fulfilling his promises to me and to you. The, the foundation of God's faithfulness is his zeal for his glory, which is rock-solid strong, immovable, never changing. It's always going to be there. You can rely on him. And so, so I, I prayed over that promise as I was walking, praying that morning. I'd been fearful about our finances, what's going to happen here. But I saw through this verse, the Holy Spirit took the truth and just changed my heart. I saw God is as passionately committed to taking care of us as he is to displaying the glory of his name. Because that's why he takes care of us, to display the glory of his name. And peace filled me. Strength came into me. I came home with joy. I don't know if Jan noticed how different my demeanor was when I walked back in the door, but I had met God in 1 Samuel 12, 22, because I saw he is going to be completely faithful. He's called us here to a job with no, no, no pay. He's going to take care of it. And I forget how long it was. Maybe two months later, uh, they could start paying me. And we were there for five years and then planted a church in Northern California. But the point is, God will not abandon you. Why? Not, not because, you know, you, you've done a lot of ministry. Not because, well, you, you, you fought off that sin yesterday. Not because, you know, you've been nice to your husband lately. That's not why God's not going to abandon you. Those are lighter than air. Put those up there in the thing. Pull it doesn't move. But you put God's great name up there. His zeal for his glory. Whoosh! He will not abandon you. That's the foundation why you can be absolutely certain God will be faithful to his promises to you. If you're not yet trusting Christ, what I'm praying is happening right now is that you are seeing a God whose love is so beautiful, so glorious, so incomparable, so like no love you've ever seen or even conceived of before, that he's melting your unbelief, he's melting your hardness of heart, and that you want to know him. You want to trust what he's done for us in Christ, and I'm praying that you'll put your trust in Jesus Christ this morning. And for those of you who are trusting Christ, I'm praying that the foundation of your confidence in God's forgiveness through Christ and the foundation of your confidence of him fulfilling his promises has been strengthened. Please don't have as the foundation your goodness or your worth. Those are lighter than air. The pulley will never move. It's God's commitment to glorify his name. That's why he loves us. Let's stand together. Worship team, why don't you guys come on up?
Let me pray this over us. I pray, Lord, that you would take these truths, especially verse 7 of Ephesians 2, and that you would teach them to us, that they would become more clear over these next days as we think and as we read. And I pray that right now you would strengthen our faith, that we would know that as we're trusting Christ, you will forgive every sin because the greater our sin, the more wicked our sin, the more glorious your mercy is displayed. Strengthen our confidence that you'll be faithful to all your promises. You will not abandon us on account of your great name because you've made us a people to display your glory, which means you'll be faithful to caring for us because that will display your glory. And Lord, for anyone here who's not yet trusting Jesus, melt their heart. Woo them, Lord. Draw them to Christ as they see your beautiful love. We pray this in Jesus' name.